This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. The battle for the soul of a nation is a phrase that we have frequently heard come out of the mouth of President Joe Biden. He invoked it after the alt-right marches in Charlottesville in 2017 and later as a campaign slogan in 2020, where he was one of more than two dozen candidates vying for the position of Democratic nominee for president. Back then, all of those contenders had their own ideas of what the soul of America really looked like and what it could look like moving forward. And while no one could have predicted the ways our lives were indelibly altered by the events of the past year, these big changes to life in America, specifically our political landscape, really began taking shape the moment Donald Trump assumed the presidency back in 2017. Our next guest wrote a book chronicling the aftermath of the Democrats' defeat in that historic election of 2016, and starting in 2018, began tracking the party's recalibration and its rebirth leading up to that 2020 presidential race. Edward Isaac Dover is a staff writer for The Atlantic who has covered Democratic politics for 15 years, and his new book is titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. In this book, Dover not only provides a comprehensive look at the 2020 race, but also takes us behind the scenes to see details and a new look at several figures who are key to the future of the Democratic Party. Edward Isaac Dover, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks for having me. My only regret is that I'm not actually in Detroit and, and haven't gotten to spend much time there since the pandemic hit, but uh, I'm glad to be here anyway. Yes, hopefully soon we will all be able to to see each other in person again. Uh, I'm, I'm anticipating that uh, by late summer that, that may be true. Uh, let's start with uh, what made you decide to write this book. It's a very in, intriguing premise. I mean, I think uh, people who think back to 2016 and the long, long faces that uh, that people inside the Democratic Party in particular had about uh, the, the performance of the party uh, in that presidential race and, and even the down ballot races, um, you know, it was a pivotal it was a pivotal moment. Talk about what what made you want to focus on the path back to victory and governance. Well, in some ways, it starts for me on election night 2016. Uh, I was at the Javits Center in New York covering what was supposed to be Hillary Clinton's party. Uh, obviously, it wasn't much of a party. I ended up leaving at about 10 p.m. Uh, and uh, getting a cab back to my hotel to get my bag and take a train back to D.C. in the middle of the night because it was clear that things were shifting very rapidly in terms of <laughs> the political coverage I needed to do. And as I was walking out of the Javits Center, I sent a bunch of emails to people who worked in the Obama White House. And the subject line was, do you have a plan? And there was nothing else in the email. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, only one email came back. Most of them didn't respond. One email came back and it just said, nope. Uh, and things kind of took off from there. And I, for me, it was a question of how much of a surprise was it really when you, it was obviously a shock that night. But when you look at what happened, what were there things that made this, 
the, the loss the Democrats had, not just with Trump uh, winning, but with uh, a number of the other losses that they had had and that we that I'd seen in in covering uh, Obama's second term and and uh, the problems that Democrats have been having winning elections. It should should people have seen it coming more? And as I set out to think about this and uh, looked at how many people I thought would be running for president, uh, I, I should say I thought it would be about 16 max. It ended up being 26. Uh, it, it became clear to me that there were going to be a lot of interesting arguments and interesting people involved in thinking about what Democrats needed to do now. And when you marry those two things together, the how did this happen? And then what goes on, uh, or who these interesting people are and what their, their approaches are to the progressive wing of the party, uh, people who were making generational arguments, people were making arguments that they needed to be, uh, like Julian Castro, a Latino candidate, or like uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker tapping into a lot of uh, other thoughts about diversity and, and uh, women running in this most diverse field ever. Then it seemed like, okay, there's an interesting story there. And within the context of the Trump presidency and everything that was going on, and that was clear by 2018 when I started working on this book, uh, if you go back and look at the proposal that I wrote, uh, it says this is going to be the most interesting election ever and probably the most important in the history of America. Hmm. Uh, that all seemed to be true before I knew anything about the pandemic or the economic crisis or uh, all the ways <laughs> that we've been rethinking society before George Floyd was killed and everything that set off last summer. Uh, but it all came together in a way that uh, tells the story that uh, honestly, I think a lot of people look back at the election and say, oh, I know what happened because so much of the Trump part of it was playing out in front of them every day. Mm -hmm. There's so much in this book that that hadn't uh, been reported before that was a surprise to me, even though I was covering it day to day for my, my day job at The Atlantic. Mm. So so let's just kind of trace over what the Democrats do in the three years between January of 2017 and maybe January of 2020, when uh, things start to, to, to come together around the idea of a Joe Biden candidacy for president, and uh, the momentum begins to build toward uh, toward November of 2020, when when he wins, how does a party pick itself up off the floor uh, the way the Democrats did? Uh, in a very uh, inconsistent, uh, <laughs> surprising ways. Um, you know, it was a lot of things going on. There, there are, uh, in the early parts of the book, there are a couple of dinners that are traced uh, of people who, for the most part, are not really well-known names, uh, but within the Democratic Party are uh, often some of the main mechanics of how things get done. So it starts even in December of 2016, there's a dinner at John Podesta's house uh, that uh, Podesta was obviously Clinton's campaign chairman mm -hmm. in 2016. And, and he invites not even a dozen people over, makes them some risotto, and they start talking strategy. How do they do this? How do they, what do they focus on? What? How do they get the, the different uh, activist groups, uh, the different sort of grassroots organizations, not the grassroots themselves, but these, the uh, whether it's uh, the teachers union uh, and Randy Weingarten, the head of that was at that dinner, or the big uh, super PAC Democrats have, Priorities USA, 
uh, and the head of that uh, super PAC was there at the dinner. Uh, and how do they divide up the work so that they're concentrated on the things that need to be happening? It's very discrete decisions that happen there. Like, do we try to oppose every Trump cabinet nominee or do we focus on one person? Mm-hmm. It ended up being the latter. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we uh, who takes care of uh, really pushing up the the um uh, the data operation that they realized had been so far behind what Trump and, and the Republicans had built. And then it's also uh, things that happen on their own, essentially. The Women's March, remember that's the day after Trump's inauguration, and it was such an amazing uh, crowd, whatever you think of their politics, that, that so many people showed up. It was stunning to people, uh, not just in Washington, but all over the country. Uh, and one of the people that I talked to for the book, uh, Cecile Richards, who was at Planned Parenthood at the time, made the point to me that you know if some group had tried to organize the Women's March, it would have taken months and months and months and millions of dollars, and it probably wouldn't have come off quite like that. So that's going on. And then you have a reinvestment of some of the Democratic leaders, uh, whether that's uh, Barack Obama or uh, people uh, lower down uh, in, in elected politics thinking, how do we grab onto this and do things differently? What do we need to invest in? Obama getting much more uh, involved in things like gerrymandering than he had been before and uh, doing some things behind the scenes to build up the Democratic National Committee after not doing much of that as president. And the last piece of it, uh, and this is all traced in the early part of the book, is that there are some new groups themselves that form, things like Indivisible uh, or a group called Run for Something that are people taking it into their own hands to say, we've got to do something to activate people in a different way and organize in a different way than even all these other Democratic groups around have been doing for all these years. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Edward Isaac Dover. He's a staff writer for oh. The Atlantic, and he's covered Democratic politics for 15 years, beginning in his native New York, on to the Obama White House, and then across 29 states during the 2020 election cycle. He's got a new book out, and it is titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' campaign to defeat Trump. Uh, the book details how the Democrats pulled themselves back together uh, after that uh, crushing defeat in uh, 2016, unexpected defeat in 2016, uh, to rally uh, back to victory in 2018 in uh, the midterm elections and, and state elections like here in, in Michigan, but even bigger in 2020 to get Joe Biden, former vice president, uh, elected to the presidency. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, let us know if you have a question about the behind-the-scenes action within the Democratic Party leading up to last year's uh, presidential election in November. Do you have thoughts or predictions about how the party will fare in the future? How are they going to do in the midterms in 2022? Will they be able to hold the White House in 2024? Uh, do you think Biden has been doing the kind of job that propels the party forward uh, in a meaningful way? Uh, Or are you somebody who's still really worried about uh, democratic institutions and and values? Are you worried about this presidency? Uh, Are you uh, somebody who thinks that we ought to be headed in an entirely different direction? Are you somebody who uh, doesn't really identify with uh, with democratic politics and are afraid of some of the things 
that uh, President Biden has done so far and is uh, talking about doing in the future. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we'll try to we'll try to work you into uh, into the conversation. Uh, I, I want to talk a little um, about the tension that existed early on in the 2020 race around uh, Kamala Harris, who ended up being the vice presidential pick uh, and now is a vice president, of course, uh, and, and Biden, who ended up uh, getting the nomination specifically in that memorable moment on stage where she challenged his record on racial segregation. I thought that was a really pivotal moment uh, in the Democratic primaries. It was, it was the most uh, aggressive challenge that I, that I remember seeing uh, to Biden and his record by another candidate. But, you know, in the end, uh, they end up on the ticket together and now now they're in the White House together. Talk about that tension and how it got ironed out. Well, uh, it's coming up on just about two years ago. It was the end of June 2019. And what happened there is that Harris was having more trouble in the beginning of her presidential campaign than most people realized. And they knew that she needed to make a splash both for her poll numbers and for her fundraising numbers. And she tapped into what was some real uncertainty about Biden that had been accentuated uh, by some comments he'd made a few weeks before, sorry, a few days before the debate, uh, saying that he had worked well with segregationists in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things the Democratic Party was going through was thinking about, okay, Joe Biden was leading the polls from uh, early out, but was an older white man representative of where the Democratic Party had headed to? Or was Kamala Harris, a younger woman of color, more representative of it? And she decided to uh, take a pretty hard swing at him. Uh, And in the book, you see these details of her, uh, the internal conversations of figuring out why they had to do it the way they did it, including when she lands on the line that she eventually said, which is, you are not a racist. I know you're not a racist, but. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was a lot of tension inside the Harris campaign of whether that was the right thing to do, whether that was essentially saying, well, you're a racist, but I'm not going to say it, (laughs) Uh, and how that would be taken, and whether uh, going so hard at Biden would uh, essentially destroy her chances of being picked for a position down the road should he be the one who won the nomination. Uh, And when she ended up saying it on stage and uh, building up to that uh, critique of busing and saying that she had been uh, she'd been uh, sort of heir to what the situation was when she was a child, said that little girl was me. uh, Biden was furious about it. Uh, so furious that he uh, turns to Pete Buttigieg on stage next to him and says, and uh, I won't make you bleep me, but says that, that was some F and BS. Uh, a couple days later, Jill Biden is talking to some supporters uh, and she's mad about it. And she says, uh, with the life that he's led and all the work that he's done to stand up there and call it a racist, Go after yourself. Um, you know, as a reporter, it's always fun to get these uh, to get politicians cursing, but it, it's actually more than fun because I think that it it reveals the true feelings, the unvarnished feelings that people have. You can see just how angry they were about it. And this 
continued to be a thing for uh, for a, a year going into the running mate selection process. Not so much for Biden. Anita Dunn, uh, Biden's top advisor, said to me at one point that Biden's the only Irishman who doesn't carry a grudge. Uh, but uh, he was worried that it would uh, the the wound of this for other people and for for Harris, the tension that was there would get in the way of them having a good working relationship and the kind of model that he wanted from when he was Obama's vice president. Uh, and what grew into a very close personal relationship where not only are they friends, but their wives are friends, Biden's grandchildren are friends with Obama's children. Uh, and he was stressing about that last summer. Mm. And one of the people that he talks to about it is uh, is Barack Obama. And you can see the conversation basically that they had in the book. Uh, and uh, Obama says to him, listen, Joe, you... You called me unqualified when we were running against each other. You said I I wasn't ready to be president, and we got over it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also at the beginning we didn't have a great working relationship, but we built it up over time. You got to give it time, uh, and it it could come together. But the most important thing you have to think of is who's going to help you win the most, because it doesn't matter who you want to have lunch with uh, or who you feel would be a good governing partner um, if you don't get elected to govern first. And uh, and Biden thought about this a lot. And uh, like there's a, there's a lot in the book that gets into uh, some of the other considerations that were there, including uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, who was very much in tune with where Biden was uh, on a lot of things. Uh, but ultimately he decides that Harris is the right choice uh, for a bunch of reasons, including that it, it, she, uh, seemed like the one who would do the most to, to help him win. And so you see that uh, as how she gets picked. And, and I, I do think you've seen a, a, a stronger than most people expected working relationship in their first uh, couple months as president and vice president. Hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work you into the conversation Let's go to Arnold in East Detroit. Arnold, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, I, I agree with uh, uh, your your guest on, on most most things he's saying. But uh, one of the big things that uh, affected the election was the effect of social media, the late night comedians, uh, and basically the mainstream press, uh, basically uh, nonstop uh, criticism and attack on. Uh, on Republicans and Trump. I mean, they they did a really good job of uh, demonizing. Now, he helped himself also by doing some really stupid stuff. But, uh, yeah, social media, I mean, you know, people gave up watching late-night uh, comedy, you know, like The Tonight Show or whatever, because it was just, for four years, it was nonstop Republican and Trump bashing. And, and the same thing with social media. I mean, if you said the wrong thing on social media, you get banned. And so, so Arnold, I'm curious. Did you feel that way? Did you stop watching late night? Uh... I stopped watching the uh, the Academy Awards. I stopped watching mm. a lot of stuff because you know uh, sports. Look what was happening in sports. You know, you know, you, you go to a, a, an athletic game to uh, get away from your job and your things and everything else and the next thing you know it's a big political thing an anti-trump deal you know or whatever anti-american 
Mm-hmm. I mean, all that helped. Mm. Now, Trump hurt himself. And I agree with uh, your, your guess that the Democratic Party did a good job of picking itself up off the floor and reorganizing itself. And there were some fortuitous things like the Women's March that he mentioned and mm-hmm. stuff like that that mm-hmm. they could <laughs> leverage, you know, and stuff like that. But the biggest effect was social media hmm. uh, and Arnold, mass media. Yeah, Arnold, I, I, I really appreciate uh, the call and the, and the comments, obviously. I mean, if you listen to the show, you know I disagree with you, especially about uh, especially about sports and sports figures uh, and and the compelling, I think, uh, need for them to be able to uh, express their opinions about things other than sports uh, because of the platforms, the stages that they're on. But I really do appreciate the, the call and uh, and your insight there. Uh, Isaac, uh, t- tell me, tell me what you think about uh, about social media, about media, uh, about the anti-Trump wave uh, that was no question propelled by, by by media over four years, and what role it played in the twenty twenty election. Well, I mean, I think we've got to split up media a little bit there. Some of the news coverage uh, that obviously was very critical of President Trump that was picking up on things that he was doing that were inviting criticism. Uh, And then there's the uh, Tonight Show, sports, you know, that sort of thing where Mm -hmm. uh, obviously media figures, but more in entertainment. Uh, And I do think that one of the things that I, I try to pick up on in the book, especially as it gets to the general election portion of it, is not... This is not another Trump book. There's not a there's not a lot of Donald Trump in it at all. Although he's uh, the context for everything that's going on, mm-hmm. uh, and you see how it does become so interconnected. What's going on? Because everybody was thinking about what was happening in politics and how, especially by last year, it it was something that was being uh, really. Uh, in, in our lives in, in every single way, almost every hour of every day. Uh, so, for example, there's a, there's a lot about Lady Gaga in the book, more probably than you'd be expecting <laughs> in a book that's about Democrats. Uh, and uh, I was in Pittsburgh the night before the election with Biden and, uh, and Lady Gaga was there to play at a concert that Biden had to try to get people going. And uh, Biden had wanted Lady Gaga to be at his... Uh, kickoff. She had resisted. She wasn't sure whether she whether he was the right candidate. There was also some issues with the fact that there are people in Lady Gaga's close family uh, who were inclined toward President Trump. And uh, so she didn't want to get involved that way, even though she's had actually a pretty long working relationship with Biden. And then by the time of the election, she's there. And there is that feeling that I think uh, Arnold is right to pick up on that a lot of people uh, in the entertainment industry were so clearly against Trump and were for Biden. And even that was a shift that uh, uh, Joe Biden is not the pop culture icon that uh, mm-hmm. that other people uh, in politics have been, especially when you compare him to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. by the time of the election, it really did feel that way. And, and those are more of the stories that I end up tracing in the book. Mm. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about the Democratic Party, how it pulled itself back together after 2016 to win the presidency in 2020. We're going to talk a little about what is next for the Democratic Party, what tensions it faces now that it has more power uh, in Washington and is trying to push uh, presidential agenda through. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. What do you make of what the Democratic Party stands for right now, what it's trying to do, and how successful you think it will be in 2022 and 2024 at holding on to the power it got in 2020. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and uh, as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Edward Isaac Dover, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who has a new book out titled Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Uh, it is about the way the Democrats picked themselves up off the mat after uh, their defeat to Donald Trump in 2016, pulled it together for the midterms in 2018, and then... Uh, won the presidency again in in 2020. We're talking about uh, what uh, what it lies ahead for the Democratic Party now that it has power in Washington again, and how it uh, pulled itself together, pulled itself back together uh, to win that election. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about what the Democrats were able to achieve last year uh, at the ballot box, but also? Uh, give us a sense of what you think of the way that they are governing in in Washington right now, in charge in uh, the White House and in both houses of Congress for the first time uh, in many years. Uh, are you happy with the agenda that Joe Biden has as president and happy with the way he's been able to move it through Congress? Uh, or are you somebody who is uh, a little frustrated even uh, by the way the Democrats have uh, have done this and are governing now. As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter uh, and put uh, comments there. We'll try to work those into the conversation as well. Uh, Isaac, before we get back to listeners, I'm going to talk just a bit about the dilemma that I, I see the party facing right now, which is that uh, in order to reclaim majorities in Congress in particular, uh, it had to turn to candidates who are very different kinds of Democrats than uh, than Kamala Harris or Joe Biden and certainly very different um, from uh, the far left uh, parts of the party um, that have bigger voices and, and maybe more say right now. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, for instance, who's a congresswoman from here in southeast Michigan and uh, the, the the group of uh, members of Congress that she's a part of uh, stand really far uh, from where someone like uh, Joe Manchin, uh, who's from West Virginia, uh, stands. And yet, without Joe Manchin, there is no 
Democratic majority in in Congress, and none of the things really that uh, that Joe Biden wants to get done would actually be achieved. This is not a new phenomenon in in, in politics, uh, especially in in closely divided times. Uh, you 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 do have uh, this kind of dynamic uh, uh, show up, but but I wonder what you make of those tensions and whether. Uh, you know, that coalition can hold together to govern, first of all, for the next two years in a way that uh, Democrats who voted uh, for them to be in power are expecting, but also whether it will hold together enough to maintain their majorities uh, after the midterms and and then, of course, get uh, get Joe Biden reelected in 2024 or get Kamala Harris uh, elected if, if Joe Biden decides that uh, – that he can't uh, that he can't run for a second term. Well, th- those are some simple, easy questions to answer. Susan. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you like two minutes. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think that the they're all big question marks at the moment uh, because there are so many things that are barreling at each other at the same time, uh, and that's why you see this level of. Uh, of tension over things like that that op-ed that Joe Manchin uh, wrote saying that he wouldn't support the voting, the, the larger voting rights legislation mm-hmm. that Democrats, many Democrats want uh, and wouldn't support getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, everything is happening at the same time and Democrats need to figure out how to get to some sort of a solution here. And one of the th- things that, that this book does, I think, is tell the story of how Democrats got to this point. What are the things that went into it, including uh, tracing how Biden goes from one sense of the presidency that he had in 2019 as sort of a, he would be a reset, give time for uh, the country to, to heal, especially after uh, things like Charlottesville and uh, change the way the politics had been veering. Uh, and that's, that's sort of what he would be. Uh, and instead, because of what happens during the campaign, uh, both in the, the primary campaign and the, uh, the the way that that is run and things that, that come up during it that are in the book. And then, of course, because of the pandemic, he ends up in this very different presidency than he had uh, could have possibly envisioned. Uh, and so I interviewed him for the book. We spoke on February 2nd of this year. It was his first interview as president. And he was in the Oval Office. And he said to me, you know, I'm the most progressive person who's ever been president. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> that's a brushback, not just to uh, Bernie Sanders yeah. uh, and that kind of thing, but it's also to uh, to Obama. To Bar- Barack and to Obama. People sure. who, yeah. who, who look at Biden and say, oh, you're just the, you know, the moderate old white guy who got rid of Trump. Biden has a very ambitious approach to what he wants. And I write in the book that he knows now that he his presidency is in part a function of Barack Obama and Obama picking him as vice president, Obama helping him build up a connection to black voters, which was essential during the primary. He knows that his presidency is, of course, in part a function of Donald Trump uh, and uh, being a reaction to Trump and wanting a lot of people wanting Trump out of the Oval Office. Uh, but he is determined to not let that be his own only place in history. And it's not just out of ego. He, uh, he talks about a fair amount now that if government doesn't get things done, then people lose faith in democracy. And that's how 
autocracy and worse things creep in. Uh, and so that's that's how he's looking at this. It's not just like he wants another notch of legislation uh, to be able to say he did, but, or he wants to build up his legacy so there'll be another room at the Biden presidential library. It's such, such a fundamental, huge question for the history of this planet, for the history of this country that is ahead of him when he thinks about can we get a deal on infrastructure? Right. Can we get the, this coalition to work together? So that's what I think you see going on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, let's go to Gloria in the North End. Gloria, welcome to the show. Um, hi, thank hi. you. And You know, I love you, Stephen. I haven't been on for a while. <laughs> but what I have to say about, I, I'm tired of hearing just um, that, all the focus is on the Democratic Party um, to solve this anti-democracy movement that's mm. going on. I think that I, well, I certainly hope that Democrats are quietly collaborating like Holder, Obama, and, and all the uh, power brokers are collaborating with clear-minded Democratic Republicans who have finally come to face how much of their infrastructure, how much of their party is anti-democratic. Mm. And I hope that they are collaborating together um, to solve this issue that, um, that, fa- that faces all of us. It's not just a Democrat party mm. um, a problem. It is a, 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 a country problem that we have with an, a party that is anti-democratic. Yeah, that, and it's I the small that, D democratic uh, exactly, issues. Yeah, Gloria, exactly. I, I, I really appreciate the call and the, and the thoughts. I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. Uh, Isaac Dover, I want you to respond quickly. I've got about a minute left uh, to, to what Gloria is saying. Listen, the Democrats are going through a lot of existential crises right now, but uh, it's not the uh, loss of faith in small D democracy that you Mm -hmm. see among a lot of Republicans. Uh, The the trick here is that it's the Democratic Party that's in power in Washington at this point, and they have to figure out how to make this work because they're in charge. And uh, you see a lot, the book involves the riot and things that happened uh, after the election and and presents a lot of the problems that are facing Democrats now as they, they try to move forward. Yeah. Okay. Edward Isaac Dover, really great to have you here for this conversation and congrats on the new book. Thanks very thank much. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. I want to thank our intern, Dan Netter, for his help with today's show. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about the controversy that surfaced around the University of Michigan coach Fielding Yost and how far we should be prosecuting cultural cultural crimes of the past. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.